BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. And we continue our conversation in this hour of Forum. And for the rest of the hour, we're talking about a woman who some would say was one of the more consequential and controversial first ladies in modern U.S. history, starting when her husband was governor of California and later when he was president. Nancy Reagan transformed the role of political spouse in many ways. Washington Post political columnist Karen Tumulty writes about it in her new biography. It's titled The Triumph of Nancy Reagan. Karen Tumulty, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Well, let me just begin by asking you about that title. What exactly is The Triumph of Nancy Reagan? Well, I, I think that this is a book that, as you mentioned, charts the, charts the trajectory of a very um, controversial first lady. But I think the triumph in the title both implies the, the setbacks and, you know, the pain in her life, of which there was quite a bit but also how she ultimately really did play an instrumental role in both the rise of one of the most consequential figures of the 20th century uh, in the success of his presidency. And, you know, I point to a number of places where um, Ronald Reagan's presidency might have gone in a very different direction had Nancy Reagan's instincts about the people around him not been better than his own. <laughs> and finally, I think um, after his presidency, when he is incapacitated by Alzheimer's so soon after leaving office, it really does fall on Nancy Reagan's shoulders to uh, both shape and protect his legacy. So this is not a book that I think backs away from her, her demons and her flaws, but I think it is sort of an overdue assessment of her significance as well. Well, and you alluded to Ronald Reagan's, and I think you, you call it in the book or quote somebody saying that he was almost allergic to conflict. He did not want to fire anybody. He did not want to have a tough discussion with a staffer who needed to be let go or disciplined in some way, whereas Nancy Reagan was quite, quite willing to do that, wasn't she? 
Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, as James Baker, who was their their White House chief of staff, their first one told me, he, he said her instincts were actually a lot better than his were. So while she was not somebody who set foot very often in the West Wing, if she was unhappy about something, everybody who worked there knew it. And people who were not in her good graces tended not to last very long in their jobs. She is, for instance, one of the Reagan reasons that Don, that Ronald Reagan went through a half dozen national security advisors. Well, and you say that that pattern began when he was up in Sacramento as governor, elected uh, defeating Pat Brown in uh, 1966, served a couple terms up there, and was very meddlesome, I think is fair to say, in terms of the way the office was run uh, from the furniture on up. Uh, and that at one point it became so intrusive, you write that, uh, that Mike Deaver, it fell to him to take what was called Mommy Watch. Uh, describe what was Mommy Watch. Well, it, and I think, uh, I think the years in Sacramento, the eight years that Ronald Reagan was governor were, were very difficult ones for her. Uh, she was very much finding her way. And, you know, certainly the world of Hollywood was, was very different from the, from the spotlight she found herself under in politics. But yes, she was, you know, constantly on the phone with people in his office, uh, you know, haranguing them about the, the people, the policies, you know, who, who was doing their job right. She became, I must say, much, much more sophisticated uh, in the course of two presidential campaigns, 1976 and 1980. And then certainly in the White House years, you did see um, her making alliances, including a continuing one with Michael Deaver, who was deputy chief of staff, that allowed her to sort of work her will without leaving any fingerprints on it. She was also very closely uh, allied with um, James Baker against a lot of the more ideological people in the White House. And she was she was a very important partner to George Shultz, the Secretary of State, as both he and she really believed that it was Ronald Reagan's role in history to um, to essentially help bring the Cold War to an end. We're coming up to a break, but I want to ask you, in, in researching uh, both for your book and for this conversation, uh, there was a note in an article that her official biography begins by saying she was born in Chicago, the only daughter of Dr. and Mrs. Loyal Davis. And as the author points out, uh, those are both untrue. She was born into a fairly dysfunctional family that broke up shortly after she was born, and Loyal Davis was her stepfather. Why did she feel that she needed to lie about that. And I apologize, we're coming up to a break so we can return to it, but just briefly. Well, I think that um, her, I, I think a lot of the, her personality was shaped in those early years of her childhood, which we can talk about when she was essentially abandoned by her mother. And she essentially, and this was the case with both Reagans, if if there was, you know, a reality that, that was harsh. They they would often sort of rewrite the narrative themselves. Yeah. All right. We'll come back to that uh, notion in just a moment. We're going to take a quick break, but we want to hear from you. What do you remember about Nancy Reagan? 
What was your impression? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook as well. We're at KQED Forum talking with Karen Tumulty about her new biography, The Triumph of Nancy Reagan. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. We're going to continue our conversation with Washington Post political columnist Karen Tumulty. Her new biography, which I highly recommend, by the way, it is it is a it's a fascinating read with lots of great details and anecdotes that I, I did not know about Nancy Reagan. It's called The Triumph of Nancy Reagan. And we'd love to hear from you. Uh, your thoughts, your recollections of her, good, bad, indifferent. Have they been revised over the years? A lot of times that happens with presidents. They look a little better you know, 30, 40, 50 years down the road than they did at the time. But give us a call. In any case, 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook, if you like. We're at KQED Forum. And Karen, I want to ask you about their parenting, because I don't think anyone, including probably them, if you'd asked them, would say that that was their greatest triumph. Uh, of course, Ronald Reagan was married to the actress Jane Wyman. They had a couple of kids, Maureen and then Michael, who was adopted. And then uh, the two of them had, um, of course, Patty and Ron Jr. Um, and it seemed, in reading the book, it almost seemed as if they wanted, especially she, wanted to get sort of the parenting out of the way so they could be back together together alone uh, which is really what they preferred uh, yeah I, nancy reagan in her own memoir writes all i ever wanted to be was a good wife and mother and i guess i succeeded more at the first than the second one um the reagans were in fact bound so closely together that um, as Patty noted at her mother's funeral, that you know they were they were a closed circle. There was everyone else just sort of floated around outside the circle, and that uh, that included sadly their children. Um, so it was a very dysfunctional family. I think each each of the children was sort of left to um, find their own way. Although I must say, of the two of them, Nancy was the more involved parent. Uh, Ronald Reagan was to, you know, was a, a very remote figure. Uh, he was literally close to only one person in the world, and it happened to be the person he married. Um, so, you know, for each of the children, they, you know, Ronald Reagan was a, a figure who loomed large in shaping their own identities. But as, as, um, his son Ron would once write. It was almost like once you were out of his sight, you you know you were out of out of his perception, even. Yeah. Well, and Ron, but especially Patty, uh, were real rebels. I mean, I think uh, you write that Patty refused to wear a Reagan for president button. She was you know well known to be smoking pot and dating older men, which of course her mother disapproved of. But it was Michael Reagan, the one who was adopted, who seemed to get really. Wow, the short end of the stick from her. I mean, at one point you write that she uh, told him his real name, 
uh, from his biological parents. And it, it seemed in a way to, you know, it was not to toughen him up. It was, it was just kind of nasty is the way I interpreted that. Yeah. It's um, first of all, what I found kind of hard, hardest of all of this is that Nancy Reagan herself as a young girl was so desperate to be adopted by her stepfather that at the age of 14, she actually has to go out and engineer her own adoption. So um, at one point, she and Michael are having one of their many, many arguments over his bad grades in school. And she says, he's not living up to the name Reagan, at which point he says, well, why don't you just find out what my real name was then? And I'll, I'll go out and live up to that. And this was a piece of information that his parents, Ronald Reagan and Jane Wyman, had withheld from Michael. But Nancy, because Ronald Reagan and Jane Wyman still share an, an, a business manager, is able to get the name of Michael Reagan's biological mother and inform him that he was, you know, the product of a fling between a young woman and a serviceman. And he is just devastated by this information. And Jane Wyman is also quite angry at, at Nancy for, for doing this because again, th this was information that they, that Michael's own parents at that point, he's in his teens have not given him. So um, Michael in many ways is the, you know, of the four Reagan children is, is the saddest story because he really never feels like he, he quite belongs either in his father's first family or his father's second family. Yeah. Talking with Karen Tumulty from the Washington Post about the triumph of Nancy Reagan, her new biography of the former first lady of California and the nation, I should mention. Give us a call if you want to join us and maybe tell us what you remember, if anything, about Nancy Reagan. 866-733-6786. Have your views of her changed over the years? 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. And here's an interesting tweet from Pete, who writes, the Soviet Union collapsed under its own weight. Please don't use this program to perpetuate Reagan myths. Um, you write a lot in the book about. Oh, Reagan. no, no. I, I just absolutely um, to, to this is to, to this is just absolutely uh, that that is also a myth. There was a there was a real inflection point during the Reagan presidency with the ascension of Mikhail Gorbachev and a series of summits that began in 1985. This is a, you know, this is an initiative that is not greeted warmly by a lot of the president's more ideological advisors. Um, they they um, believe that, you know, that essentially the Soviet Union is irredeemable, that there could never be any such thing as a working relationship with Moscow. And behind the scenes, Nancy Reagan was very, very much a force pushing towards these summits. And I would really recommend that your um, that whoever tweeted this uh, might take a look at, among other things, the memoirs of people like George Schultz, who could actually give you, again, a, you know, being there as Secretary of State for six years, could, uh, you know, this, this warming of relationships, these, the arms control treaty that Reagan and Gorbachev managed to negotiate were but absolutely not 
foregone conclusions. But I think what he, uh, the, the, Pete, the tweeter, is saying is that it wasn't just what Reagan did that brought down, uh, you know, he famously went to the Berlin Wall and said, Mr. Right. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And lo and behold, the wall came down, uh, not because he, Gorbachev tore it down, but people did, other people. But, um, you know, the point that, 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 that it wasn't like just... I, said, that, yeah. I just would, I would just very much disagree that, you know, this was just some kind of foregone conclusion. I mean, it happening when it did. One of the reasons that helped sort of accelerate the collapse of the Soviet economy was the, you know, the arms race that they found themselves in with the United States. So again, I just think that um, that the person who is tweeting this is is uh, trying to is, is essentially simplifying something, and and again the timing, the opening of this relationship was very much an initiative of Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev, and I think that those two found themselves as partners in in really bringing about an entirely new kind of relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union. Well, and in fact, Gorbachev, I think, visited them on their ranch after Reagan left the White House and he came to his funeral. But bringing it back to Nancy Reagan, um, you, you note, noted that she kind of pushed her husband uh, into meeting with him and being more open to having a couple of summits, which, um, you know, of course, happened. But she was also very involved behind the scenes in terms of the, you know, the atmospherics, the photo ops, uh, including what uh, coat Reagan was wearing in that first famous handshake uh, with with Gorbachev. Talk about the role she played behind the scenes. And then I want to ask you about her relationship with Raisa uh, Gorbachev, uh, his his wife. Well, I actually opened the book. Um, on a scene. And again, this is a story that George Schultz himself told me in my first interview with him. It is February of 1983 and Washington is socked in by a blizzard. George Schultz at that point is only seven months into his tenure as Secretary of State. He really doesn't know Reagan all that well. Nancy Reagan invites Schultz and his wife over for a private dinner in the, in the White House residence. And Schultz has just returned from China, and he is surprised at the degree to which the Reagans are really pushing him to learn more about communism and communist leaders. You know, And at that point, Reagan starts talking about his own ideas for engaging the Soviet Union. This is all a revelation to George Schultz, who you know, doesn't know the president except for the fact that he has decades of anti-communist rhetoric, that he is presiding over the largest peacetime military buildup in US history, um, and that his entire administration, with the exception of a few figures like George Schultz, is really populated by hardliners. And it is at that dinner that Schultz begins to recognize that Reagan really does believe in his skills as a negotiator, but also that he is anxious to, you know, to put those skills to use. But Schultz also realizes that this was the whole reason Nancy Reagan set up this dinner that, that, you know, so that, that, you know, Schultz could hear from the president himself, what he really what he really saw as his longer term goal. And Schultz also realizes at that dinner that he has found a very powerful ally in Nancy Reagan. Uh, she would also do things like uh, push 
Ronald Reagan to soften his rhetoric about the Soviet Union when he uses the phrase evil empire to describe Moscow. Uh, the two of them have many, many arguments over, over that phrase as well. Yeah. All right, let's go to the calls. Uh, and again, the number, if you want to join us, it's 866-733-6786. And let's go to Lee in Oakland. Welcome. Hey there. Um, I I haven't read the book, but I have a distinct memory of being bussed in Los Angeles in fifth grade, 1989, to the Rose Bowl for a dare rally where Nancy Reagan was uh, delivered by helicopter in the middle of the Rose Bowl. And we had a huge dare rally that was taking place in Los Angeles County. And Just I remind us what know, dare, what did dare stand for? Drugs, something? I, I don't even remember. <laughs> it was an anti-drug um, program. But I, but yeah, suffice it was to an say. anti-drug program, but I wanted to know how it tied into the war on drugs. And, and you know, my memory of it was just so much propaganda. Um, but Nancy was right in the middle of all that. And so I, I just wanted to know more about if you got into that in the book or yeah. more about her role. Yeah. And Karen, talk also about how that came to be, because I, as I recall from the book, it was sort of a way out of some rather negative press she was getting at the time. Actually, Nancy Reagan's program while she was first lady was called Just Say No. Um, and it it was mocked, in fact, at the time and, and since. Um, it was essentially trying to change the attitudes. And it, it was really aimed at very young kids. It was aimed at elementary school kids to essentially make drugs unacceptable, to build social pressure. Um, there are... A lot of reasons people have criticized it, one of which is that it was seen as kind of family-friendly cover for uh, the Reagan administration's own programs, which kind of treated drug abuse as, as a law enforcement issue, not a, not a health issue. Uh, but there is also evidence, and I cite it in the book, that in fact, if you look at how young people's attitudes towards casual use of drugs, even marijuana in the 1980s, that there, there was a real shift. Um, and again, I cite the research in the book, um, but it, it again uh, went, uh, you know, interestingly enough, counter to a lot of the things that the Reagan administration was doing, which included incarcerating a lot of people over drug use, um, and especially disproportionately men of color. And also it comes at a time when the Reagan administration is cutting programs for drug treatment and drug prevention. So um, while I think that you can see that there is a shift in young people's attitudes and then it shifts back in the 1990s, uh, it, the program was also justifiably criticized as, like I said, family-friendly cover for, for yeah. other things that the administration yeah. was doing. Well, and she had her own issues with drugs. I mean, they were legal, but she, prescription. She, yeah, she did. As, as I, I reveal in the book, um, her, own, her own dependence on prescription drugs was serious enough that it, it came to the concern of not one, but two White House physicians. Yeah. I have to ask you about what is probably one of the most, if not the most unforgivable episodes of Ronald Reagan's presidency, and you have a whole chapter about it in the book, is the AIDS epidemic, which began uh, while he was president, in fact, in the first year of his presidency. And it took him six or seven years to really say anything about it as thousands of people were dying. What role did Nancy Reagan play in all of that, either for good, ill, or indifferent? 
Well, I think we should stipulate that the um, the Reagan administration's failure to first recognize the AIDS epidemic and do anything aggressively about it is and will always remain one of the deepest scars on its legacy. Um, Ronald Reagan did not even mention the word AIDS until his second term in office, at which point tens of thousands of people have died of the disease. Um, but as I, as I point out in the book, Nancy Reagan belatedly, uh, but uh, before her husband did, did in fact uh, come to recognize the seriousness of the, of the problem and did in fact do a lot of pushing behind the scenes to, um, to bring the president around on the issues. When he finally gives his first big speech on the AIDS epidemic, and mind you, this is incredibly late in his presidency, it is 1987, Nancy Reagan is unwilling to allow the White House West Wing to even write the speech. She goes out and gets her own speechwriter for it because um, too many of the social conservatives around the president at that point wanted people to view AIDS as a moral issue, not but, a health issue. But was, was, and, was her motivation there that she was concerned about the way it would look or because she really wanted him to do something about the epidemic? She knew that, that, that this was not she had finally be, she had begun to realize that this was not a, a place where history was going to look on him kindly. Um, and ultimately, when Reagan does finally appoint his first big high-powered federal commission to look into AIDS, it was Nancy Reagan who insisted that there be at least one openly gay expert on the disease on the commission. And this, again, it's hard to believe that this could have been controversial, but it really was quite controversial among many of the people on the right at the time. Yeah. Coming up at the end of the hour, but I have to ask you about uh, a part of the book that has a San Francisco connection, and that is astrology. Astrologist Joan Quigley, uh, you said that her reliance on uh, that became, uh, began as sort of a crutch. How did it, uh, how did she, why did she turn to astrology and what impact did it have on her and, and the presidency as, as it went along? Well, both of the Reagans, interestingly enough, kind of dabbled in astrology going all the way back to the late 1940s and early 1950s. It was something that a lot of people in Hollywood sort of, um, you know, like I said, dabbled in. Um, but it is really after she almost loses Ronald Reagan to a would-be assassin in, in March of 1981, that she becomes panic-stricken and convinced that every time he leaves the White House, there's somebody out there waiting to finish off what John Hinckley started. But where Ronald Reagan after and again, have, that, have to ask you to make a make it uh, wrap it up because we're almost at the top of the hour, but it did have an impact going forward, right? Absolutely. Uh, she did. She did turn over essentially the scheduling of pretty much everything that happened uh, to a an astrologer in San Francisco. All right. Funny that she, the astrologer happened to be here. All right. Karen Tumulty from The Washington Post. Her book is called The Triumph of Nancy Reagan. Thank you so much for joining us. And you've been listening to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.